Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandi Scalace, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here today to get an update on living bodies objects. With me is Amelia DeFalco, Associate Professor at University of Leeds, and Steve Byrne, Artistic Director and Chief Executive at Interplay Theatre. Thank you both for being here. Hi. It's great to be here. It's so nice to talk to you guys again. I know that this project, uh, Living Bodies Objects, has been a kind of evolving uh, project, and that's exciting because most people only see the product of research and development, and they don't see all of the process that goes into it. So since we get a chance to kind of have that transparency, I was wondering, Amelia, if you could give us a little bit of an update on what's happening right now with Living Bodies Objects and how Steve is working with you. Sure. So I think as we've discussed before, um, Living Bodies Objects or LBO is pretty is a pretty unusual project in a lot of ways. As you say, generally those not involved in a research project don't see the process, they only see the product. But um Living Bodies Objects is even a little different there in that as researchers, we are not focused in this in this project specifically on products and outputs. Um, So more than most projects, I would say, the process is at the forefront and and is meant to be visible, meant to be visible uh, as much as possible. And thinking about how that, how uh, research works and the process is, is crucial. So for example, what we've been doing lately is developing a range of principles and strategies for how we will work and what the process is really meant to be. So um, we've been developing a kind of project uh, ways of working agreement that we are um, hoping will guide us through the entire experience. And this is meant to be a living document. So it's going to be iterative and, and be constantly adapted as we go. And as we, you know, discover what works and what doesn't and and to learn from mistakes. Right. And I think it's especially important because to the public, research is often sort of cryptic, isn't it? You know, we sort of uh, to the to the lay public, things just arrive. We we don't always get to understand the complexities of how groups work together, issues of accessibility, who is in and who is out, whose ideas get to be incorporated into those larger projects. So I think that this is a a real situation for expressing um, just how much diversity goes into any really good outcome. And seeing that process laid bare for the for the casual observer is, I, I think, really, really powerful. Um, and speaking of that, I know that Steve works with the theater and, and theater is always a very visual medium. I wonder, Steve, could you tell us a little bit about Interplay Theater and what, you know, what your goals are and, and how you're interacting? Sure. Interplay Theatre has been going for about, we started in 1970, and under my artistic direction, we kind of work across the five senses. Um, 
that's part of a kind of uh, an aesthetic of work, but it also is a, an attempt to make our work accessible to people uh, who go to special schools, young people with learning disability, and uh, young people who might experience the world in, in a kind of different way to, to the normative, I suppose. So and, and that is something that the company has done um, since 1970s is work with people with learning disability across the senses to create work. Um, and our shows are part installation, part performance, um, in which the, the, the sort of the world of the play unfolds. We research with actors and dancers and scenic artists that work in schools with those young people and um, testing ways of communicating with, with, with young people um, uh, across the senses, but there are also other senses that come into play as well. I think that that's really wonderful, and particularly the way that your theater is not ignoring, or maybe a better way of saying this is often uh, people with disabilities are an afterthought, right? It's not as yeah. though things are constructed for them. It's almost like after a product is finished, people go around going, all oh, right, how do I make this accessible? Certainly. When instead you're working it right into the design of how you do this. It's right in at the beginning, and I think it's one of those things that I think we're a bit of hidden in secret in in some ways in in the actually having to change the way that we work as performers, dancers, singers, actors, or whatever, and have to make that art form work in a new way is something that's really interesting to us, and you know that how sound can work in a space. We make an offer to the young people that they enter our world, which is mm. often a space we've constructed, which places them at the center of the experience. And then things like proximity and presence start to, to come into play. So that can be done really conventionally with, with an actor, you know, obsessively talking to, to a group of people or being in role and they have a feeling or a want they, they need to express. It might be that we move in the space together and the story comes out of that. So it mm. kind of makes us look at how we tell stories and how we can make our work accessible. It actually, I think, puts us on the edge of what um, some of that theatre technology can be, actually, because it means we bring touch into the show, we bring nice. taste into the show at different points. And, and yeah, so it's kind of looking at those options. And we've done straight plays in those ways, and we've created happenings in the space as well around that, like throwing paint around to music, uh, being in water, all sorts of stuff we try to, to try and tell our story. I think that's brilliant. Um, one of the things that, so I'm a writer, <laughs> but yeah. I'm also autistic. And I know that in our world, the word is often privileged, either the written word yeah. or the spoken word. But of course, while I'm hyperlexic, there are a number of people with autism who are nonverbal and who are often left out of these spaces, yeah. even though, you know, or treated as though they aren't they aren't paying attention or when they are, they're actually, yeah. they're very much paying attention, but with all of these other senses. So I think that that's a really magical thing. You said move with you in the space. Does that mean the audience sometimes also participates in the creation of the show? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the piece. I mean, j just for clarity, we kind of research and develop our work in special schools and we take a team of artists into the school and we work 
um, with the teachers or, or, and the young people over about a week normally. And that is open-ended research. We might have a question that we're looking at, a story or an atmosphere, all sorts of stuff that we want to access with those young people. And they're part of that research. Then as a team of artists, we go away and work on the story and how we can make it mm-hmm. accessible. So we've created pieces. We created a piece called Paint, which kind of used kind of like um, painting techniques and music and dancers mm. in a space, and you entered that world. A teacher talked about how some of his students, who were described as very far away, hard to reach, he wanted he wanted if we could create a piece that would mean they could leave a trace in a space. Mm. And just the way that he described it kind of led me to dance, really, like mm-hmm. a, a dance piece, but then also using dripping painting techniques in the space. So we created a space where young people went in, glimpsed story, met characters, but left a mark in the space. Then that nice. was captured digitally afterwards and, and all of that for each intervention that happened. So it can work on that end and then it can be much more conventional as well. That's wonderful. You know, I was uh, speaking to uh, Cheryl Green on, I just, I have another show called uh, Peculiar Book Club, which is a twice monthly YouTube and podcast. Cheryl Green also uh, does our transcripts for BMJ. And she was talking about the fact that we we have a tendency in our world to say something is good when able-bodied people can use it. You know, so for instance, it, right, because she said we, we have like, okay, there's there's a ramp and the ramp was created to help wheelchair users but if it also helps skateboarders suddenly it's like look everyone and but that's not what makes it good you know it's it's not the um she was much more articulate about it than i am but what she was basically saying is what makes the innovation good is that it includes and makes space for disabled people not that you know but at the same time it often also frees uh uplifts or helps able-bodied people and i think that's uh another beautiful thing about the the multiple sensory experience that your theater provides is that it's not just doing that but it's expansive it's amazing if you can open that door on something a modulation you have to make to the work um and then it suddenly gives you a whole other raft of uh, potential actually within the performance as well which is really interesting it's it's you know sometimes you can create something in the rehearsal space and then try it with our audience and it's not working it's not getting through um and so you have to relook at what what it is how do we need what do we need to do to make that more accessible or more effective at that point and that journey sometimes frustrating but actually ultimately always really rewarding um, and makes you look at your work and your practice again as an artist i think i think that's brilliant so given that uh, that creative interplay, I wonder, Amelia, if you would be able to make an analogy to the way Living Bodies Objects is taking form itself, because it sounds to me like that theater experience of engaging with a larger audience and then rethinking and reflecting is kind of something that you're doing with Living Bodies Objects on the whole. Yeah, actually, it relates. I mean, yesterday we do a, a a weekly lab experience, and it often involves uh, your typical meeting part, but also workshops, etc., with our residents. And and um, so Steve was involved, and actually that was part of our discussion yesterday. Is kind of partly thinking about 
developing um, this ways of working um, agreement that I mentioned for the project, but another aspect of that is a ways of working with interplay agreement and to, to do our best to um, learn from one another and think about how we can incorporate the um, a lot of the practice that is already happening at interplay that Steve is guiding into our project uh, working practices. And, and we did actually, we're talking about that kind of process, that two-step process of kind of intuitive making and then uh, reflection and the kind of the cycle that is that we want to go through as a group, you know, about allowing space for intuition and play and experiment and critical reflection and learning and kind of constantly learning and building from that. I think having attended these performances, it's much more than attending. It's really more participation um, mm -hmm. that, that Steve is describing another one that's happened recently that some of the project team, the LBO project team went and um, were part of the audience when it was performed for um, some of the special students in their theater. And I mean, it's exactly as you say, you know, the fact that they are putting kind of this focus on accessibility first means that it's a richer experience for all, all the audiences that are, mm -hmm. that are um, in the room. Um, and it's, it's incredible the way that they use, um, like he mentioned, the, you know, sensory experience, but that, so that includes, of course, like your conventional lights and, and movement, but also, um, music and touch and, um, uh, color and, uh, kind of changes in temperature, moisture, et cetera, um, fabrics and, and the degree to which it involves the audience. And then in that sense, like the, the audience is brought together as well. So um, it was really incredible to see it in in action. I've, I've had the pleasure of being in the audience for several of their shows. And so we're already learning so much from their practice and what they kind of take for granted um, in, in their kind of performative practice. And so that's something we want to work to with um, them to develop I mean, I hesitate to say performance because it's so much more than that. It's, um, as he said, it's kind of often more of an installation, something, a kind of experience and creating mm -hmm. environments for that. Sometimes, you know, the, the audience comes to the environment. Sometimes the environment comes to the audience, depending on if they're going into schools or, or not. And so we're in the process of developing one together that really speaks to the kind of central ideas of the project that are that in many ways that are represented by those title terms, living bodies, objects, and creating something that starts to raise some questions around the porousness of the boundaries between those terms. Um, something uh, that, you know, thinks about the degree to which animation and object status and liveliness and uh, what constitutes a body, all of those kind of come together and, um, and that they are not nearly as discreet as we might imagine or first imagine anyway so uh yeah we've learned so much we've learned so much from them already uh it's been really great experience i want to say a few things just clarifying for the audience a little bit more about living bodies objects but before i do steve i have a i have a question for you there's a lot of people describe theater and music because they're they're art forms that transcend and they they're in all cultures they go back well before written history that it's a, a kind of place where you can meet 
and translate without the necessity of knowing a specific language. So I don't want to call it, I feel like when you use words like primal, it comes with a lot of baggage. So I don't really mean that. But is there a way in which theater gets at something intrinsic about us? Yeah, I, I think it is something that in us. I, I think when I came into interplay initially as as uh, as a fresh artistic director, I, I couldn't really see the specialization. It wasn't in the work that uh, they I'd seen for my interview, um, and 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 it, and actually it was kind of like, in my view, quite old and dry theatre they were trying to, to to make work with young people. Um, so I kind of went back to the basics of what theatre is. And it seems to me that that has got a, a kind of like a religious element about it coming back from ancient Greece and, and people gathering to, to witness or be part of stories. And, and that kind of elemental view of theatre is something that I have seen. Um, and one of the questions that I raised really early on was this whole notion of being in the moment and being lifted by theatre. And it seems to me that that is increased and built on when we come together as an audience. And, you know, there's Peter Brook and the Conference of Birds where they, he brought different actors together from different cultures and different languages and they worked to find that commonality. And I think that's something we do with artists that we work with. Um, we kind of like make room for them and try and bring them into our aesthetic. Thank you, Steve. That's, that's beautiful. And the reason I asked that question is, is getting back to what living bodies objects is, I think, trying to do, which is, uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar, um, when we refer to LBO, it's living bodies objects, but there's no space between living bodies or objects. And that was intentional. Uh, Stuart Murray explained to me that the whole idea was that these boundaries are rather artificial, um, that we have, this concept that, you know, this is me and that is not me. And these are constructs that didn't necessarily exist in history and will probably be different in the future. And the more we create boundaries around ourselves and the less permeable we make them, uh, the more isolating it becomes. And in fact, it makes it even more difficult for issues of accessibility and the ability to understand and communicate with other people, people who are different from us in a variety of ways. So uh, living bodies objects, again, while, while there's no product yet that it has created, what it's doing is it's deconstructing the way we research, the way we ask questions. And it's trying to get at the heart of something that I think we've lost, but in previous periods actually had a better sense of, which is the way we constantly interact with everything around us. So um, I just want to bring this back to Amelia to see if there's you know, some closing thoughts that you might have about where you guys are headed next with the project. You put it so wonderfully there, Brandy. And, and again, thank you for reminding listeners that the typographical element uh, or the typography of the uh, of the actual title is significant, right? That that um, the way that it's arranged on the page, et cetera. And the fact that, as you say, a lot of the project is devoted to not just questioning the boundaries, uh, but but just doing what we can to explore 
for lack of a better word, it's so overused, but the entanglement, it's such an overused term now, but the entanglement across the terms, right? So thinking about the animacy of objects, the li- or liveliness of objects, the embodiment that they have, and the way that um, all three terms are kind of constantly interacting and, and present, um, thinking about porousness, et, et cetera. So uh, as I mentioned, one of the things we're doing uh, is is developing um, an experience, would I say, Dave? <laughs> I'm not sure what the right thing, because performance feels quite uh, insufficient for what we're doing, but it, developing some kind of installation or experience that um, will allow audience members to interact with um, these kind of quasi-living creatures or objects, etc. And most likely we'll be doing that uh, with uh, conceptualizing these this with robots, care robots perhaps, but thinking about, you know, uh, how we might bring objects to life. Um, and so the, the opportunity to work with actors and work with Steve has just been opened up all these possibilities. So that's our next step. But again, as it's been a struggle for me the whole time, because we are so product fixated, right, in in academia and research culture, I mean, we have to remind ourselves even again and again that the project is as much about the ways of working, about research culture, about about really thinking closely and being attentive to how we work and making that process visible, as you say, as as much as we can for ourselves and for others and to make that the point so that we and try not to get overly focused on the product. Right. Because of the many ways that, you know, we're always encouraged to do that in in uh, research spaces and in academia. Right. Well, and so I think uh, as we leave this podcast today, and thank you both for being here, one thing to remember is that there are different modes of approach, right? We tend to think in uh, inductive versus deductive, and deductive is perhaps what we have privileged over much, you know, a sense of efficiency that this is the product I want, here are the steps I'm going to take to get it, as opposed to inductive. But when you think about it, uh, most children explore the world inductively, don't they? They pick up a piece here and they pick up a piece there and they figure out which pieces fit together. And in many ways, this is an inductive rather than deductive process. And we welcome it as another way to enter into the medical humanities. So thank you again, both for being here. It was such a pleasure. I'm glad that you came. Thank you, Brandy. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners, because it's always wonderful when you take part in the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ.